You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Asha. Today, we have a very special episode. Astronomer Sean Johnson is going to come and talk to us about the history of the universe. So thank you so much for coming. I've been looking forward to this episode. Like when you do human history, it gets a little depressing sometimes. People are violent, they're wars. So I was like, why not do the history of the universe where mm-hmm. there's a lot less depressing things, I hope. <laughs> it depends on whether you're talking about the, the history of the universe itself or in some, sometimes when you study the people who do the studying, it, it doesn't always look so great. <laughs> So can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I know you studied at the University of Chicago. Yeah, that's right. So I studied physics and astronomy and math at the University of Chicago, um, both for undergrad and grad school. Wow. Um, And I I work on observations of galaxy evolution in particular. Um, So I use telescopes uh, in different parts of the world and uh, a few in space um, as well. And then I went and did a postdoc Princeton um, before coming to the University of Michigan as a LSNA collegiate fellow and assistant professor, which is my current job. And on top of it, you also volunteered regularly at the Prison Teaching Initiative, which is very good for the soul as a good karma. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So actually the astronomy department at Princeton, or people at the astronomy department, founded the Princeton Prison Teaching Initiative, which teaches for profit, sorry, for credit, not for profit, (laughs) Um, for credit classes, community college classes uh, in state and federal prisons so they can earn their associates while inside. And then once released, the students uh, have the option of enrolling in Rutgers and continuing with a BA or BS. That's amazing. Well, thank you for doing that. That was my pleasure. Some of the best and most motivated students I've ever worked with. Amazing. Um, so what got you interested in astronomy um, besides the obvious wanting to go through space and discovering new worlds and new civilizations, not yet new civilizations, but new worlds? <laughs> Maybe someday. Yeah. Um, so I guess it's a long-ish story. So I, I grew up in Houston, so I was sort of surrounded by NASA stuff just, you know, because of proximity. So, you know, there's always like space shuttle stuff and or there was always space shuttle stuff and things like that going on. Um, and one of my neighbors actually was an engineer at NASA um, and he would occasionally bring old retired spacesuits to, to local schools and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know, sort of got interested in astronomy early when I'd see my neighbor toting around a, a spacesuit, which was kind of awesome. And then I, I kind of lost interest in it until I got to college and started doing a little bit of astronomy research because it was the, the first physics research opportunity that came up um, for me. Um, and I just enjoyed the process of going to telescopes and observing uh, so much um, and wanted to keep doing it. Um, so it's worked out so far. I'm very lucky. Okay, so shall we start from the beginning or shall we start from what people are familiar with? Um, in terms of like the history of the universe? Yeah. Okay, that's always a tough question. Um, so let's start with, uh, let's just start with 
a solar system. So can you quickly explain what is a solar system? Sure. So uh, a solar system is a star that has planets orbiting it. Mm-hmm. Um, it turns out that, you know, of course, we are in a solar system. The Earth is orbiting the sun. Um, and there are a bunch of other, or a little more than a handful of other planets orbiting our sun as well. But, you know, we're not unique at, in, in that fall. So almost the, the majority of stars in our galaxy also have uh, at least one planet orbiting them. So solar systems are the norm, which is actually uh, a relatively newish um, discovery as far, as far as astronomy as a field is concerned. And it used to be that we thought solar systems were rare, um, that most stars would not have planets around them. But in the last two decades or so, we've, we've realized that it's super common and almost every star uh, has at least one planet. Okay, quick question. What came first, solar systems or galaxies? Hmm. So, excellent question. And like most in astronomy, the answer turns out to be a little bit complicated because you have to define what a galaxy is first. Okay, so what is a galaxy? Right, so that's where things get complicated. So we have a sort of operating definition. Um, A galaxy is a a collection of stars held together by gravity um, Mm -hmm. and has also gas and dust um, and things like that. But there are also star clusters that are, you know, collections of thousands and thousands of stars held together by gravity. You said something, there are also? Star clusters. There are also star clusters. Star clusters? Clusters. Oh, star clusters. Okay, got yep, it. Like a pecan cluster, but stars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and they're held together by gravity too, but they exist within galaxies. And so what, how do you define the two differently is, is kind of almost semantics. But a, a good operating definition of a galaxy is that it's a collection of stars, gas, and dust, uh, and also dark matter. It's all held together uh, by gravity. If I remember special relativity, there must be some really, really strong or big mass to hold together something like a galaxy. Is that right? That's right. So our Milky Way uh, has a mass, to hold it together, has a mass of something like a few 10 to the 12 solar masses. So that's like if you have... One solar mass is equivalent to like the weight of our sun. That's right. So it will be 10 to the power of 12 of the weight of suns or weights of suns, right? Yep, that's right. And most of that is in dark matter. What is dark matter? I wish I could tell you for sure. Um, so what is dark matter is one of the driving questions in modern cosmology. Uh, oh, okay, so... For now, is dark matter things that you kind of need to balance the equation that you don't know what it is? (laughs) That's exactly correct. So we see that the stars are held together and in fact not all flying apart. Mm -hmm. Um, And in order to explain that, assuming our theory of gravity is correct, so assuming Einstein's theory of gravity is correct, we have to suppose that there is this dark matter that doesn't emit or interact with normal matter except by gravity most of the time but it's kind of a you know we have very good reason to think it exists but we don't actually have direct evidence and theorists can come up with all sorts of possibilities and figuring out which of those possibilities is correct or more correct um, is kind of the one of the leading 
efforts within cosmology right now. Now that we kind of know what a galaxy is and what a solar system is, how do we answer the question, what came first? Right. So the picture of how our solar system formed is that the sun formed out of gas in our galaxy uh, a long time ago. And it formed when the gas sort of collected under the influence of gravity. So it got dense enough to pull itself together and then it kept pulling itself together until the sun uh, formed in what we call a protoplanetary disk. Mm-hmm. So it's shaped like a disk and not a sphere. That's right. It, it's shaped, there's a, a sort of sphere at the middle that eventually becomes the sun. Mm-hmm. Um, and then surrounding that, there's a disk. And then within that disk, you get little planets that start forming. And then as they orbit in a disk, they pick up more and more gas uh, and molecules and even maybe some rocks um, and start to form uh, planets. So the sun and the planets around it uh, formed at the same time out of a gas cloud within our Milky Way galaxy. And what caused the sun to, I guess, ignite? Yeah, so this is a, a really good question. So as that more spherical, sort of denser clump of gas at the center of the disk pulls more and more material in, um, it starts to heat up. So it, it's taking gravitational potential energy. Mm-hmm. Um, so as things get moved together, that releases energy. Mm-hmm. And that energy has to go somewhere. And it turns out it goes mostly into heat. And eventually, the core of it hits about 10 million degrees Kelvin. Um, and I apologize for using Kelvin units, but it's just a Oh, no, you just have to add a 200 for Celsius, so. Right. Um, <laughs> and I can't do the conversion to Fahrenheit off the top of my head, but it's... No, no, don't worry. You don't worry. People can figure it out. Super hot, right? <laughs> 10 million degrees anything is just unimaginably hot. Mm-hmm. And when it gets to that temperature, suddenly it can fuse hydrogen into helium, and that releases energy. So, um, hold on. That means, like, it takes two hydrogen molecules and pushes it together to make one helium molecule? Is that how it works? Very close. It takes four uh, hydrogen. Four, and to mix two helium. Yep. So it it takes four hydrogens, essentially, and then combines them into two protons and two neutrons, which is a helium. And that fusion releases energy, and that's what keeps the sun hot. So that moment is when the sun became a star, when it started fusing hydrogen to helium. And that continued fusion is why the sun is still emitting light uh, today. So it keeps us alive. Is it still fusing hydrogen to helium or has it moved on from helium to the next? What what happened? It is. The the sun is still fusing hydrogen to helium in its core. And it's about halfway through its hydrogen fuel supply. So at least several billion years left to go. Um, Okay. Nothing nothing to worry about. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Okay, no, we have plenty of other to worry about, but nothing from the sun. <laughs> um, okay, so then I, I guess we're still answering the question, what came first, a galaxy or a solar system? Yeah, right. So in our case, the galaxy came first. How do we know that? Oh, excellent question. So we can get a pretty good estimate from the age of the sun based on you know, our understanding of how quickly hydrogen burns uh, as one starting place. You can also measure the age of stars from their rotation rate, because um, their spin slows down over time. 
and the chemical composition. So we can measure what elements exist in the atmosphere of the sun, and then we can compare them with what we expect of gas in our galaxy at different times. Because when supernovae explode, they put more heavy elements, so things like carbon, oxygen, even iron, into the gas within the galaxy. And so the fact that the sun has a, a pretty good amount of heavy elements means that it formed after a bunch of other stars formed within our Milky Way. Ah, so it's like a relative aging thing. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, so, okay, so I have a few questions. Mm-hmm. I remember reading an article about how we figure out planets in other stars, and it has something to do with like, like a little like like there's a dip in color or there's like a dark like like when the or something like that can you explain that process sure so there's a couple of ways that we detect planets around other stars and the one you're describing is i think the most common one still and it's called exoplanet transit so if the orbit of a planet around its sun around its star is lined up so that it the planet passes between us and the star as it orbits, mm-hmm. the planet will block a little bit of the light from the star, right? So if, if you were looking at the sun and the earth passed in front of it, you would see a little bit less light from the sun. Mm-hmm. And for planets that are big enough relative to their star, we can detect that bit. And I think, you know, we're, we're down at you know parts per million, essentially, in terms of how much light can be blocked before we are able to detect it. Ah. And so you, you watch the, the amount of light dip as the planet orbits in front, and then to confirm that the star, this, the, that dip is actually due to a planet, you wait for it to happen again, because uh-huh. the orbits have a, a regular period, and you see that it happens again, and you predict that it will happen a third time, and sure enough, it does. And so that's how we confirm uh, planet candidates around other stars. Okay, so um, since you also said you're interested in telescopes, so can you explain how far can we see, like, I understand the radio telescope, like the quote-unquote, what are we think of as a lens is like the radius of the Earth. So, like, how does that work and how far can we see? Okay, so the, the size of a telescope determines sort of two things. The first is how much light you collect. So mm-hmm. a bigger bucket means more light. And so then you can see fainter things and fainter things. Mm-hmm. Seeing fainter things means we can see further away, right? Because the further away something is, the fainter it looks to us. Mm-hmm. The second thing is the diameter of the telescope um, tells you how sharp the image it will deliver uh, will be. So doubling the diameter means a, a two times sharper image. So with the radio telescopes, I think what you're talking about is when you have two radio telescopes on like sort of opposite ends of the Earth. Mm-hmm. And that allows you to sort of fake having a telescope with a diameter of Earth. Mm-hmm. You get really high resolution, but you're still not collecting as much light as like the entire surface of the Earth would. Um, ah. But there's actually been a, a huge advance recently. So NASA recently launched the next generation uh, space telescope, NASA and ESA, the European Space Agency, uh-huh. and the Canadian Space Agency, too. So that's the JWST, which is a six and a half meter telescope orbiting around the Earth at a, a 
particular special place in orbit called L2. And the thing that makes JWST special is both that it's large, so six and a half meters is a whole lot bigger than the previous generation Hubble telescope, which is two and a half meters, uh, but also that it sees light in the infrared. Oh. And very, very distant galaxies emit light observed by us uh, in the infrared because they're... Because of the Doppler shift, right? That's exactly right. So the universe is expanding, and so that takes the visible light that those galaxies emitted you know, 13 point something billion years ago, and it redshifts all the way into the infrared, or far infrared even, depending on how far they are. And JWST was built to observe near infrared to mid infrared so that it could study emission from the very first galaxies. And NASA released the first images from JWST last week. I saw that. And what does it say? Like to me, it looks like a lot of pretty things. Yeah. So scientists are just getting their hands on the data for the first time. So the, the first science papers from this telescope appeared um, journal preprints today, actually. Um, and maybe there were a couple a few days before, but the first one that I saw that caught my interest was today. And the main conclusion right now is that the telescope is working phenomenally, even better than hope. So we're seeing these very distant galaxies uh-huh. up to 13 point a few uh, billion years of, of away, light years away. Mm-hmm. And we're still, we're like, we're really just getting a handle on them. But I don't know if I can tell you exactly what they say yet. And no worries. Based on the data I've seen so far, we're going to be able to measure the amount of carbon and oxygen in the gas around these very early galaxies and things like that. A very early meaning very old or in early stage of development? Excellent question. So very early stage of development. So during an early time in the universe when the galaxies themselves were very young. Oh, and because it takes time for light to travel for That's so right. long, we are just now picking it up. That's right. So the very, very distant galaxies from when the galaxy was very young. You know, today, those same galaxies would be very, very, very old, but we're seeing them when they were young. Ah, okay. And the hope is that we understand how they form or like what co- things like that, right? Exactly. So you said you, you mostly study people, right? Oh, no, we're a history podcast. So we, we do anything in the past. Got it. Okay. So this <laughs> is very much in the past. Uh-huh. But yes. The, the hope is that we can observe galaxies as they existed in the very early universe, mm-hmm. and then a little bit later, and a little later, and a little later, and then today. And from that, we hope to be able to piece together a picture of how galaxies form and evolve. The caveat there is that we can never actually watch a single galaxy as it evolves over time. We just get you know, one galaxy that's very early and very far away. That takes billions of years, right? Right, exactly. And so it, it's kind of like trying to piece together how humans go from being babies to adults when what you have is not a family photo album, but a bunch of random pictures of people from all different times in the history of the Earth. Ah, that's, that's actually a, a very good analogy. And so from that, you try to figure out what happened in between those. That's right. Exactly. So we have a whole bunch of snapshots 
um, and we know when those snapshots were taken, but we don't actually have a snapshot of the same galaxy at different times. So is it possible in the future to get the snapshot of the same galaxy at different times or not? Real. Or is it because for it to be meaningful, it needs to be a few million years? Is that the problem? That's right. So for the sun to orbit around the center of the Milky Way once uh-huh. um, takes about 200 million years. So if our goal was to see directly how a galaxy evolved through one rotation of its spiral, that would take 200 million years. Um, so in principle, it's possible, but we're, it's a little bit beyond our, you know, human time horizon. Uh, okay, so you say spiral. So are things spiraling into the galaxy as in one day they'll fall inside? Actually, no. That is an excellent question. But they're, they're actually orbiting. I hope you don't say that's an, it's an excellent question to like every dumb question somebody asks you. Just it's very hard to ask a dumb question in astronomy. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> at, almost, at almost any question you can ask, an astronomer has asked at some point in the last hundred years. Um, okay, excellent. Because our, our field has just changed so much uh, mm-hmm. so quickly. But yeah, the, the gas is not actually spiraling in along the spiral arms. Um, the sun is in a spiral arm, but it's also on a stable orbit. So it will keep orbiting at roughly the same distance from the center of the Milky Way um, for the foreseeable future. Are the spiral arms also orbiting the galaxy by themselves? So it's kind of like how the Earth and Sun and Moon kind of work, right? Yes. Yep. They're all following the same laws of gravity. That's right. Just, you know, one, the Earth is orbiting the Sun, and the Sun is orbiting around all of the stuff that's uh, inside of its orbit within the Milky Way. So there's Milky Way. Um, I guess there's, you know, other galaxies like Andromeda. Are we able to discover stars inside galaxies that are not our own? Yes, absolutely. How? Um, so this actually gets back to the point you made before about the diameter of a telescope mm-hmm. um, being related to how sharp its image, the, the images it, it collects are. So for nearby galaxies, like Andromeda, um, for example, it's not too hard to see individual stars within the Andromeda galaxy because it's relatively close to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those stars are still relatively bright and they're far enough apart that even with a normal telescope on the ground or a, a professional like you know six meter telescope on the ground um, you can actually resolve out those those stars so the images are not so blurry that they all overlap but as the galaxy if you if you start to look at galaxies that are further away the stars appear closer to each other on the sky mm. and so they start to blur together unless you build a bigger telescope and then you can start to resolve them again um, so how far we can see individual stars in distant galaxies depends on the size of the telescopes we have. Oh, wow. Okay. And now, just curious, like, what are quasars and pulsars? Like, I hear about them, but I don't really know what they are. Sure. Okay. So, I'll start with quasars. I actually study those some, um, so I know a bit more about them. So, every massive galaxy that we can measure the how or- stars orbit within its center. Mm-hmm. Um, every massive galaxy, so far as we know, has a supermassive black hole at its center. So the Milky Way has a, a roughly million uh, solar mass uh, black hole mm-hmm. um, and some 
you know, other galaxies that are near us have billion solar mass mm -hmm. uh, black holes. And that is the gravitational pull that keeps the galaxy together. It actually is a small part of the, the gravitational pull. Right? Oh, okay. So one good way to think about it is that the black hole is maybe a billion solar masses, mm -hmm. um, but the, the mass of the galaxy itself is 10 to the 12. So it's, the total mass of the galaxy is actually much larger than the black hole. Okay. And so how is the total mass distributed to keep it together? Just Yeah. Um, pretty broadly. So it's, there's more mass in the, towards the center, uh -huh. um, but there's actually a lot of mass outside of uh, even the spiral arms and disks. So the, the mass of galaxies, the dark matter, is, is spread out to really large distances. Um, but to get back to your question about quasars, so when the supermassive black hole at the center of the galaxy starts to accrete a bunch of gas, so a bunch of gases falling on it, that gas also forms a disk. And just like the protoplanetary disk, as it falls in, it heats up mm. um, and gets really, really, really hot. Um, so hot that these things, accretion disk around the black hole, which we call a, a quasar, can outshine the entire rest of the galaxy. So the quasar from the mass, supermassive, but comparatively small, center part of the galaxy can emit more light than all of the stars in the galaxy combined. Wow. How did we detect the first one, I guess? Yeah. So this is the story of how an astronomer ended up on the cover of Time magazine okay. um, back in the 60s. So when the first really good radio telescopes were built, we found you know, the, the sun emits the radio waves. There's certain types of stars that are very special that emit uh, radio waves called uh, pulsars or dead stars, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, but we didn't know a whole lot about them. This is what pulsars sound like. Um, but there were these random objects on the sky that, if you look at an image, looked like stars. Mm -hmm. They were just points of light, but they were super bright in the radio. Mm. Uh, much, much brighter than anything they were expecting a star to produce. Mm -hmm. um, and so there, there was this mystery, like, what are these star-like radio sources? And so the name Quasar actually comes from uh, quasi-stellar radio source. So they're sometimes called QSO for quasi-stellar object. And the quasar, I don't know exactly how it morphed from quasi-star radio source to quasar, but, you know, they sound familiar or similar. And so they figured out which of these stars were emitting in the radio, and they went and got a spectrum. So someone named Martin Schmidt uh, did this and figured out that it was actually redshifted um, mm. by a lot. And so for about a decade, there was a debate about whether or not quasars are at the centers of distant galaxies and redshifted because of the expansion of space, mm -hmm. or uh, were they somehow moving at a tenth the speed of light away from us? Um, and it turns out they're 
in galaxies, we can actually directly confirm that by imaging them um, with really good telescopes and seeing that there's a galaxy around the quasar. Yeah, it was, it was one of the sort of quasars, the discovery of what quasars are is also how we discovered that the universe is so gigantic. Uh, how did we discover the universe is so gigantic? Oh, um, that we, we figured out that the quasars were redshifted because of the expansion of space. And a really big redshift means lots of space. Got it, got it, got it. Um, and that's not like the thing about the universe is it's kind of hard to grasp yes. <laughs> how big it is, I guess, and what goes on in there. Yep. Space, the final frontier. And you know they're going to colonize it once they make an explosion-proof rocket for billionaires. So to prevent the whitewashing starting with the Big Bang, head on over to historically.substack.com and subscribe today. Also, we know you've had a long, hard day of putting up with trots. So check out Late Nights with Lennon on YouTube and Twitch. Get commentary and trolling from 100 years ago by the absolute master of the form and see how little has changed. It is what is to be done. So I just kind of want to summarize what we've learned so far. In our solar system, the sun and planets formed around the same time. Uh, the sun was just kind of collecting, it was like spinning while collecting material. And then there was this other material that was not far away and they formed their own uh, gravitational, like they kept on spinning and kind of became spherical. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they formed around the same time, like all the planets, right? So we know that there's a big black hole in the center. There Mm -hmm. are, and and every galaxy also has a quasar. Um, Not every galaxy has a quasar because sometimes the black hole isn't accreting gas, so it it doesn't have that disk around it. It's just kind of a a black hole. It's a little lonely, maybe, but it's it's just kind of sitting there. Okay, so only when it's accreting gas is when you can get quasars. That's right, and. Then galaxies have massive solar systems spinning around. And with our particular galaxy, we're part of like a little, is there a name for that um, spiral arm that we spin around for our spiral arm? No, I actually don't know if we have a a special name for our spiral arm. So there's, we call like the the stars around us um, that are quite close, like the solar neighborhood. But that's only a small part of the spiral arm. Okay. Can we? Can, how far can we see through into our spiral arm? So, if we use infrared telescopes, we can actually see all the way uh, to the black hole at the center of the galaxy. Wow! And radio telescopes as well. And what have we seen then? Yeah. So the the radio telescope that you mentioned before that has you know two or many telescopes spread across the surface of the Earth was actually built to see the gas that's immediately around the black hole at the center of the Milky Way. And so if, if you Google Event Horizon Telescope Milky Way black hole, um, you'll get an image that looks like a, almost a donut. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the part that's sort of red or bright in that image, that's a little bit of gas that's immediately around the black hole. Mm-hmm. And the dark part is where the event horizon of the black hole is. Okay. And the event horizon is, a, is like the point where gravity gets so strong that light can't escape. You got it. 
That's exactly right. Okay, that's so hard to grasp because we kind of think of gravity as like a little jumpy and to have like such a strong gravitational, it's kind of hard for us to grasp as humans, right? <laughs> that's right. It's, you know, physicists talk about gravity being the sort of weakest of the forces, but when you make a black hole, it's pretty strong. <laughs> Yeah. What? Okay. Uh, it's a strong nuclear force, weak nuclear force, gravity, and electromagnetic. Okay. Well, like, like I, I guess I think of well, not me, but I, I took a course when I was doing math in undergrad at Michigan. Like, a, like I believe it was an astronomy or physics course. I can't remember, but like somebody mentioned it as like like putting like a big bowling ball inside of a jello and like that's like how you kind of think of like the gravitational pull um mm -hmm. uh and so which makes sense and then with the black hole it'll make sense as to why it's such a strong pull because it's like really massive mm -hmm. since nothing comes out of the black hole how do we know anything about it <laughs> we only can learn things about what happens immediately around it, not ah. inside of it. So we can measure the orbit of uh, stars around the black hole, and that mm -hmm. gives us a measurement of the black hole's mass. Mm -hmm. So before the Event Horizon Telescope, the way we knew there was a black hole there is because we can actually watch over the course of a, a decade individual stars orbiting around that black hole. And sometimes they get really close to it um, mm -hmm. And so that gives us an, an estimate of the mass and an upper limit from the radius of the black hole or, or the radius of the event horizon because the star didn't disappear. Ah, okay. And so that tells us its mass and its size together that those two things say it must be a black hole, assuming our understanding of Einstein's theory of gravity is correct. But we can't actually tell what happens inside. Ah, okay. That makes so much sense. Okay. Um, and... Okay, so now I know that you need air for sound or whatever, but think of this as an analogy. Is the universe quiet or is there like always like some sort of radio wave, some sort of sound that it keeps emitting? Mm, excellent. Another excellent question. Sorry to keep saying that. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. So there's a few ways to answer this. So within the gas of a galaxy, so, so we think of space like outside of the Earth's atmosphere is being empty. Mm -hmm. um, it's actually not. There's uh, gas and plasma there. The density is just very, 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 very low. What kind of gas is there? Ionized hydrogen. And what is plasma? I'm not exactly sure. You can think of it like a gas for okay. our purposes. Um, it, it flows a little bit differently, but it, it's not super different for sort of intuitive purposes. Mm -hmm. So... That gas, we call it the interstellar medium, mm -hmm. and sound waves do travel through it. We, we could not hear them because um, mm -hmm. the gas is so low in density that if you put us there, um, we wouldn't live, of course. Um, but there are sound waves in it. Um, the other way to answer this question is that there are actually gravitational waves um, oh. that are ripples in space-time itself. Wow. And we sometimes think of those as sound within the universe. Okay. Can you talk a, a, a little bit more about, I've heard, I kind of heard of it, but I don't know much about what, what is a gravitational wave? Right. So what, this is actually a prediction from Einstein. 
Um, oh, is it? Okay. Have, so it, this is a theoretical, what is it? No, actually. Um, we know it exists then. We, we know it exists. I think it, the first discovery was announced in 2014 or 2015. It looks like they won the Nobel Prize in 2017. Yes. <laughs> so sometime before then. Yep. Yep. Um, and it was one of the quickest turnarounds for a discovery to Nobel Prize. <laughs> so space-time itself can expand. We've been talking about the expansion of the universe, right? But it can also carry what are a lot like sound waves, so ripples um, in the universe itself within space-time. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you have two massive objects that get really close to each other and start orbiting one another, that actually creates... Uh, gravitational waves Mm. Um, and when those gravitational waves pass through something Mm -hmm. they cause its size to change a tiny tiny bit and so the the way that astronomers discovered um, gravitational waves was by measuring a tiny expansion and contraction in the size of this thing called the the LIGO uh, observatory and they measured that expansion and contraction um, and the sort of how it oscillated in time and that confirmed that it's a gravitational wave that was doing it. And what happens, suppose, um, okay, I, I know this is a plot of Farscape, but humor me. What happens if like a rocket goes in the middle of the gravitational waves? W- will it be thrown out? Oh, I mean, they, they, they travel through us all the time. Um, they're just very, very, very weak. They're very common is what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. Um, one of the, sort of next frontiers in gravitational wave astronomy is to or to observe the sort of random fluctuating gravitational wave background that's just there from all of the stuff orbiting around everything in the universe. And it, oh, okay, I see. Like, like kind of like, kind of, okay, so... Kind of like ripples on a pond when it's raining. Oh, okay, darn. I was kind of hoping it'll be like there's like a real rip in space-time where you can have a, like a wormhole or something, but no. <laughs> um, not with gravitational waves. That's a darn whole different... So that, that is an actual theory that hasn't been directly confirmed. I, I know, I know. I, I was just wondering, because uh, when you mentioned that there was a disturbance in space-time, I got really excited, but then... Yep. Now that you... so, But gravitational waves are everywhere when there are two massive objects near each other? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, in principle, you know, if you're walking around a room, you're emitting gravitational waves, too, because you have some mass and you're moving around. But that's so small. But it's so tiny that, you know, it'll never be detected. Okay. How, okay. For the one that got detected, how big were those two masses? Yes. So the first discovery were, was a pair of black holes, each mm-hmm. with a mass of a, a few times that the mass of the sun and they orbited each other and then merged together to form one black hole. Um, That's possible. Wow. Yep. Yep. And the, the mass of the black hole that formed is a little bit less than the mass of the two black holes originally, because that there's some energy, some mass that actually gets converted into the energy of the gravitational waves. Ah, uh, so the mass, Actually, there are times when it converts to energy in Einstein's yep, yep. So I, I don't remember <laughs> the specific numbers off the top of my head, but it's something like you know, a five solar mass and a six solar mass black hole combined together, and they made a 10 solar mass black hole, something like that. Oh, okay, okay. And some of it was energy, and 
was it nope. emitted like a light or what how do how did that emitted energy look like most of it goes into gravitational waves oh okay okay yeah, a little bit might if, if you have a, a neutron star uh, and a black hole or a neutron star and a neutron star merge then more of it goes into light but still mostly into gravitational waves so how do you detect this gravitational wave now i still don't understand that part then so when a gravitational wave passes through something, it gets very slightly longer or shorter. And so we can actually measure the tiny little expansion and contraction. So the LIGO observatory is actually two long arms mm -hmm. um, that cross each other at a right angle. And you measure the length of one arm relative to the other. And so when a gravitational wave passes through one of them, it's size or apparent size relative to the other it starts to fluctuate okay so it's uh, so it's kind of like how we discover planets not directly but through evidence of it passing through other objects that's right that's right interesting and have they always existed i think so um oh, cool yeah as far as we know gravitational waves will have existed since the beginning of the universe yeah, as long as there was gravity, there should be gravitational waves. Is that like how gravity is distributed or like how, how do, what's a conceptual way to think about them? It is not actually carrying the gravitational force itself. Okay. What is it doing then? The best way to think of it, I think, is really just like a, a wave traveling through water. And that wave is created by those, by when the two stars, two black holes merged. Yep, exactly. You can think of having two, if you, if you were to hold two balls around each other in a pot of water and then start rotating them around each other, you'd start to see these sort of ripply waves moving outward uh, from them. Mm -hmm. Almost like, yeah, I mean, you see this if you stir a cup of coffee, right? You stir it at the center and the waves start to move outwards from your spoon. Ah, okay, 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 I see now. Exactly. Uh, like, almost like. Okay, I see. Like, like if you drop a, like, whatever, some, like, ball or some object inside of, like, a flat surface, it goes, yep, like, yep. okay, got it. Is the way we know about galaxies only through telescopic observation, or is there other devices we use to find? Okay, so the, the way we observe galaxies themselves right now is only with electromagnetic radiations. Mm -hmm. So optical light, radio waves, ultraviolet light, infrared light, all the different types of light. That's how we study galaxies. Mm -hmm. In principle, we will soon be able to start using gravitational waves to learn about galaxies too. Mm. So if two black holes in a galaxy merge together and we detect that with something like LIGO, mm -hmm. um, that can tell us how far away that galaxy is. There's also um, neutrinos, which are very, very low mass particles um, that travel at very close to the speed of light. Mm -hmm. um, and there's actually tons and tons of them moving through you um, and every person on the Earth all the time. They just almost never interact with matter. Mm -hmm. But occasionally they do. And we can use them in principle to study galaxies as well. So Someday, we hope to be able to study galaxies using neutrinos. But right now, the electromagnetic light is our, our main way of observing galaxies themselves. 
we also use physics experiments in labs on Earth to understand the processes that happen in galaxies. Explain? That's a little perplexing. So let's say you want to study how molecules form in interstellar gas as a star and a protoplanetary disk is forming. You would set up an experiment in a lab mm -hmm. that mimics the physical conditions of that gas. So you would want a similar density, a similar temperature, a similar composition, and then you would see what chemical reactions start to happen. So combining laboratory experiments with what we observe in telescopes allows us to get a, a physical picture of what happens inside of galaxies. That's really amazing. Um, and so now let's say that there's like a star that's a little older than our sun and a little bigger than our sun. Sometimes people call these supernovas. What is a supernova? How, how does it happen? And why? Okay. If we know. <laughs> so there's a, a couple of different types of supernovae, but the, the one that I'll, I'll talk about is the sort of death of a massive star. It's the very end of its evolution. So after hydrogen, I'm sorry, after helium, uh, is there some heavier element that keeps coming? Right. And then what's the heaviest element it can stand? Right. So it burns hydrogen to helium, and then it burns helium um, to carbon and nitrogen and oxygen and things like that, right? So you burn a heavier and heavier elements. And eventually, the core is made up almost entirely of iron. Mm -hmm. And you can't actually fuse iron to make heavier elements and release energy. Do we know why? Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's actually one of the types of experiments um, that informs astronomy, like lab experiments. Mm -hmm. So we can measure whether or not you have to put energy in to fuse something with iron or whether that makes energy. So like a, an exothermic chemical reaction type thing, right? So it can only fuse if it is making energy and not sucking energy. It only fuses if you add energy to it. No, no, no. I'm saying the reason why helium, hydrogen to helium fuse is because it's making energy and not sucking energy. That's right. So the sun in principle could fuse hydrogen, sorry, could fuse iron into some heavier, even heavier elements, but it wouldn't make energy that way. And so it would stop shining. What actually happens is that the core of iron gets so massive that it actually starts to overcome some of the nuclear forces the gravity starts to overcome the nuclear forces. The whole thing collapses into a neutron star and in the process releases an enormous amount of energy. What is a neutron star? It's a, a star that, well, it's a essentially a big ball of neutrons that's roughly the mass of a star. Okay. Oh, because all the protons have been pushed out of it? All the protons have been combined with electrons to form neutrons. Oh, duh. Sorry. So it actually pushes them all together um, and it forms a big neutron star soup-like thing. Mm -hmm. um, they explode, and when they do that, they deposit heavy elements into the galaxies, which are still well, Why do neutron stars explode? Sorry, the supernova explodes and forms a neutron star. So the core becomes the neutron star, and the outer parts of the star, get they get exploded into the surrounding parts of the galaxy. Ah, uh, I see, because they're, the gravitational pull is not strong enough to pull them into the neutron core. That's right. Ah, and so what we see is these other elements that are 
escaping. <laughs> yep. And that's how the, the carbon and oxygen um, that makes life possible made its way to us. It started out in a mass, or it was formed in a massive star that then exploded. We call these core collapse uh, supernovae. The core collapses. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the outer parts that have lots of carbon and oxygen and things like that get driven out into the surrounding gas and eventually form a new star and planets around it. It's almost like reincarnation. <laughs> yes, yeah. It's, uh, we sometimes call it the galactic recycling uh, process. Oh, my. Like Before a star is like at a supernova stage, what happens to the planets that are orbiting it? Oh, yeah. This is where things could get depressing, depending on your time, how you view time horizons, right? So the sun will not actually uh, go supernova in this way. Our sun. Our sun. It is not massive enough to collapse a core uh, into a neutron star. But when it runs out of hydrogen in its core and starts fusing helium instead, it will expand a lot. How big? Uh, roughly, the, the radius of the sun will be roughly at where we orbit around it. Ooh, okay. So we, we will be roasted. Oh, unless we, yeah. Yeah, in, in billions of years. Yeah, yeah. What happens to Mars, Jupiter's, and uh, Saturn or whatever? Like, it stays where it is? So, yes, they, they will stay where they are. Um, I think Mars will get very hot, um, too hot for, and now I'm sort of stretching my memory a bit, too hot for life. But in principle, I think some of the moons of Jupiter might be livable. Okay, I have a question, though. I have a philosophical question. Sure. How do we know what we need for life? Because we like only have one sample, which is Earth. And people keep saying that, oh, this can support life, that can. And how do we know that? So when astronomers say they are looking for a planet or moon or something that could host life, mm-hmm. we have Earth-like life in mind. Ah, not because that's the only possibility, but because, you know, we know what life on Earth does, so we can mm-hmm. get a sense of what conditions are required and even predict how we might observe it from our Earth. And the, the condition that people focus on is often the existence of liquid water. Ah, okay. So the weather is not something is in what people call the habitable zone, is essentially is the temperature right for liquid water, or is it within a factor of a few? Um, okay. I know a lot of astronomers uh, like, like explaining why everything's wrong with every sci-fi movie, which is cool. So do you have any <laughs> pet sci-fi? Uh, fi- the water thing, um, it reminds me of signs. And I'm like, why would an alien come to a planet where it's raining like something toxic to them? But that's another story. So do you have any pet irritants in sci-fi movies that you want to get at right now? <laughs> I actually don't. Um, okay. From my perspective, the reason that we are able to to build telescopes and discover things about the universe is because so many people are interested in astronomy and cosmology and the universe, right? And we have been throughout recorded history. And science fiction is part of that interest, right? Oh, yeah. And it's not pretending to be accurate or real, so I don't see why we should require it to be. It's just part of the you know, imagination that gets people interested in um, astronomy in the first place. Okay. Well, I mean, some is, I, I think, like, 
some of it is a little irritating, like the signs one where the aliens come and then they're like the water like causes them to have severe burning reaction. I'm like, but this planet rains water. <laughs> sure, sure. So yeah, there there are plot holes in movies for sure. Sorry, that was my pet peeve. But um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it, got it. If it's a plot hole, I'm, I'm completely with you. <laughs> okay, it's a plot hole. That's yeah. But you're, uh, yeah, I understand. But I've seen other uh, physicists and astronomers sometimes like talk, like get irritated with certain things in certain sci-fi movies. But you're not one. Nope. And I, I don't judge people for getting interest or for getting irritated at it. I completely understand it. I just would rather focus on the fact that people are thinking about the universe, even if ah. you know they're not doing it in exactly scientific ways. Well, sometimes people think about it and then like they'll see like a concept in a sci-fi movie and then come home and Google it and then look about the real scientific matter, right? Exactly. Exactly. Well, thank you again. And do you have um, any future projects, like any website, like anything, any resources that people can come and learn more about your research or galaxies in general or anything else to plug? So if you're interested in learning more about astronomy at a sort of like not quite a physics major, but interested in learning sort of details and how we know what we know. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a blog called Astrobytes. How do you spell it? A-S-T-R-O-B-I-T-E-S. Ah, like little bites of astronomy. Mm-hmm. That's right. And it is a summary written by current astronomy and physics graduate students. Yours? Sometimes. Of recent research papers. Um, but the summaries are written so that they can be understood by people with a sort of undergrad level science background. So if you took a, a physics class or an astronomy class in undergrad. Or a math class. <laughs> or a math class, you can probably read these. And, you know, there will be some jargon that you might have to Google, but it's a, a, a great entry point. Oh, okay. The other thing I wanted to mention, since you're mostly a history podcast, is that the history of astronomy is kind of fascinating and the way it's been used and still is today as a tool of nation states. Mm-hmm. So something to keep an eye out for. If you ever notice things like when NASA does a press release um, and politicians talk about the latest telescope, uh-huh. um, it's a, a way of amplifying national narratives. Thank you so much. Do come back because uh, this is we have a we had a big topic. So yes. <laughs> have a great rest of the day. This was one of the most fun interviews I've ever had. For me too. Thank you. Bye. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.